Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at cccLife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite biographies, I love to read biographies, one of my favorites is about a Dutch woman by the name of Corrie Ten Boom. In fact, the book was eventually made into a movie. Both the book and the movie go by the same title, The Hiding Place. The Hiding Place. The Hiding Place is, is uh, actually that phrase is a description of Corey's house, the home in which she grew up. Now, on the outside, it looked like a typical house on the block in her hometown of Harlem in the country of the Netherlands. Uh, but on the inside, there was something different going on. It was actually, in 1943, it was a, a rescue station for Jews who were trying to escape the clutches of the Nazis. Again, it looked like an ordinary house. Uh, Corey and her dad were both watchmakers. And in fact, Corey was the first female licensed watchmaker in the country of Holland. Uh, so they converted the, the main floor of their house into a watch shop, but they, they also brought in an architect to design a secret room, okay, a room behind a false wall, and they would hide five or six people in there at a time. They were part of the Dutch resistance movement in World War II. Their house was part of a, a, it was a network of homes that saved over 800 Jews from the Nazis uh, during the time of the Second World War. Unfortunately, they were eventually ratted on. Okay, somebody gave them away, and so on February 28th, 1944, the Gestapo raided their house. Never did find the secret room. But they hauled off Corey and her sister and her dad to a concentration camp, and Corey was the only one who came out of that experience alive. So after the war, she became an author, she became a, a public speaker. For the next 30 years, she traveled the globe, uh, speaking in over 60 countries. The, the theme of her talk was, only Jesus Christ can give you the ability to love your enemies. So the hiding place. The hiding place, the story about a home that was more than a house. The story about a home uh, where people, people's lives were saved. Now, today I want to talk to you about your home. We're, we're in the second week of a four-part series called Love Your Neighbor. Love Your Neighbor. Last weekend, uh, Vision Weekend, we spelled out that this is not only a series with which we're, we're launching the ministry season, it's also our biggie goal for the year. So every one of our ministries, every department of our church has, has its goals. The student ministries and international impact and community groups and so on, they've all got goals, but there's only one biggie goal for the church that transcends all departments. It's a goal that we hope to get everybody around our church participating in this year, And the biggie goal for the year is love your neighbor. And it's so important, I explained to you, that we have asked all 300 or so of our community groups uh, to get on board for the four weeks of this series, to put aside other Bible study topics, and to drill down into this one with us, learning each week what it means to, to love your neighbor. So I hope If you're one of the several thousand people who participates in a community group at Christ Community, I hope that this last week you had a robust discussion in your group about the first installment in the series. Now, the series focuses on four verbs, four action words, 
four ways to love our neighbor. We looked at the first of these last week. It's the verb meet. You know, we can't love our neighbors if we've never met our neighbors. Can't love our neighbors if we've never met our neighbors. So last week I gave you a very specific challenge for meeting the people who live in close proximity to you, whether those are people on your block or people in your apartment building. I challenge you to do canning hunger. Okay, canning hunger is a real simple strategy. You collect canned goods from your neighbors, and it gives you a natural excuse to ring the doorbell of somebody you, you, might, not, you might not have a reason to speak with otherwise. So all of your neighbors think that caring for the poor and the needy is a good thing to do, so when you show up, they don't resent it, but it gives you an opportunity as you're collecting their canned goods to start up a conversation. And last week, we said anybody who wants to participate, uh, we gave you a stack of bags. You leave these bags, one at each of your, your neighbor's homes, and then you come back you know, five, seven days later, and you collect the canned goods, you ring the doorbell, and it gives you an opportunity to start up a conversation. Now, we thought we had ordered more than enough bags. In fact, we overestimated the number of bags we thought we'd need, and you guys still surprised us. Uh, because at three out of our four campuses, we ran out of bags before the last service was over. So we ordered more bags. <laughs> This, this past week, and as you leave today, your campus, uh, go out the exit door, your auditorium, you will find a stack of bags there for you if you're willing to participate. So again, it's a real simple thing to do, and as we, we said last week, you heard me say, you, you know, you might not like this strategy, you might, you know, think it's something you, you don't prefer to do, and, and I'm not going to guilt trip you, browbeat you into doing it, but I am going to ask you, what is your plan, what is your strategy for meeting your neighbors? You can't love your neighbors, the second greatest commandment, according to Jesus. You can't love your neighbors unless you've met them. So what's your plan for meeting your neighbors? And if you don't have a plan, I recommend canning hunger to you. Okay, Sue and I have plans to go out this afternoon. We sent word out uh, via email because we've got all our neighbors' emails now and let them know this past week that we're coming Sunday afternoon. So uh, pick up a stack of bags and spread them around your neighborhood and, and utilize this if, if you don't have a plan. If you've got a better plan, great. If you don't have a plan, then I like our plan better than your plan, all right? So meet your neighbors. Now, today we're going to take a look at the second verb, okay? The first verb is meet. Second verb is host, host. And we're gonna talk about welcoming our neighbors into our homes, whether that's to watch a ball game or to share a meal, to celebrate a birthday, to play a round of bunco. Uh, this is called hospitality. Hospitality. There are four aspects of hospitality that we're going to look at today. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Okay, Luke chapter 5. And uh, get the outline from your program so that you could fill it in as we go. Because we're offering real practical stuff throughout the course of this series. Ultimately, uh, we don't want to be just hearers of God's word. You know, listening to a sermon at a weekend service. Uh, scripture says, don't be just hearers, but be what? Doers. So uh, jot down practical stuff that will help you put this into practice. So first aspect of hospitality, I'm calling it hospitality's home. Okay, hospitality's home. And what I mean by this is if you're going to practice hospitality, if you're going to host your neighbors, it helps to have a home in which to do it. 
It's pretty obvious, right? So it doesn't matter what kind of home you got. You may have a you know, two-story brick colonial house. Uh, you may have a dorm room at NIU. You may have a one-bedroom apartment and one bath. You may have a ginormous house. You may have a townhouse and a retirement community. But it helps to have a home in which to host your neighbors. Now, even though I'm, you know, I'm leading with that, i got to quickly add that it's amusing that our supreme example when it comes to loving neighbors, hosting neighbors, is Jesus Christ who didn't have a home of his own. So how did Jesus do it? Well, he was constantly borrowing, using other people's homes to host folks. So that's what we're going to read about today. Luke chapter 5, uh, begin at verse 27. It says, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were meeting or eating with them. Let's stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you for your clear word. So what does Jesus do? He uses other people's homes in, in, in which to host uh, folks. So they may have been the homeowner, but when they threw the party, Jesus was the center of attention. Jesus was the one who got things going. Jesus was the one who engaged other people in conversation. If you read the gospel accounts, Jesus often spent time eating at other people's homes, and it's obvious for all intent and purposes, he was the host. Even though it wasn't his home, he was the one who was hosting others. So that's what we're going to learn from Jesus today uh, about how to host others, use our homes as a place to host others. Now, in this story, the house was owned by a guy named Matthew. Uh, he's called Levi in Luke's gospel, but he goes by both Matthew and Levi in the New Testament. And because we're most familiar with the name Matthew, I'll probably refer to him as Matthew today. And I'm trying to picture Matthew's house. Luke gives us a couple of clues here that it was a pretty big house. Uh, for one thing, he refers to Matthew as a tax collector, a very high-paying job in Jesus' day. So the dude had a lot of money. Uh, he also tells us, verse, verse 29, that th this was a great banquet. There, were, there was a big crowd there. So, so when I picture uh, Matthew's house, you know, I've, I've got in my mind this a circular driveway, and as you pull up for the party, a valet parks your car. There's this huge entranceway where your guests are welcome. There are spacious rooms throughout. You go through the house, and you walk out into the back patio, and there's a built-in swimming pool. That's how I, I kind of picture Matthew's house. Now, I want to ask you a question. How do you picture your house? How do you picture your home? Maybe it's an apartment, not a house. How do you picture your, if I were to ask you, describe your home to me, what would you say? Now, before you answer that question, I want to give you an analogy here just to stretch your thinking a little bit. Okay, here's the analogy. Uh, I remember years ago learning a parenting tip that I found really useful. I uh, can't remember whether I read it in a book or I heard a speaker say it, but uh, wherever I picked it up, you know, someone, someone said, that there are two ways to teach your children how to identify people. Okay, one way is you could teach them you know, just by dint of habit. You know, this is the way you do it. You could teach them to identify people by their external traits. 
So you're constantly saying things like, did you see that bald guy with the birthmark on the side of his head? You know, or, or wow, check out that girl with the pink hair and all those body piercings. You're always identifying people by their external traits, you know, their race or their looks or, or, you know, what they seem to be doing at the time. Now, the teaching principle, parenting principle that I was taught was there's a better way to teach your kids to identify people. You know, don't do it by external traits. Do it by real depth character traits. You know, say stuff like, did you notice how patient that cashier was with everybody? You know, or wow, your coach is such an encouraging guy. Or Pastor Jim is just hilarious, isn't he? I mean, he's got the greatest sense. See, it worked, you know. Now, here's the point of the analogy. Okay, in the same way that it's a good thing to teach our kids to look for traits other than just physical externals, how about the way we describe our homes? Do we constantly describe our homes as, oh, yeah, we live in a one-story ranch, walk-out basement, three bedrooms? Or do you say, yeah, I live in a dorm room at NIU right now, (laughs) two two desks and a bunk bed? Or or I live in a ginormous house. We got five bedrooms and a four-car garage and a deck with a spa on it and a big mortgage and Is that how we identify our our, our homes? Because here's the challenge. What if we started identifying our homes, describing our homes in terms of their capacity for hospitality? What, What if we got known as having the home where visitors get a warm welcome? Or where there's real fun around a game night or a deep conversation around a fire pit? You know, what if we started looking at our home as, as the place where uh, we could entertain our neighbors, where we could cook a big batch of chili and say to someone as we pull into our drive, say, hey, we cooked way more food than we could eat ourselves tonight. You guys doing anything for dinner? Come on over. What if we started identifying our homes as places of, of hospitality? See, there, there, there's a future for your home in this regard. You got to have a a home to do some hosting, but how do you look at your home? Strictly in terms of uh, what impresses others or in terms of what blesses others? Is your home a tool for you to be able to bless other people? You say, well, how do I get started at that? Glad you asked. Let's move on to our second point. Hospitality's occasion. Hospitality's occasion. Go back to Luke chapter 5. Let me reread verses 28 and 29. Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, he got up from his tax booth. He left everything, so he quit his job, and he followed him. He followed Jesus. And then uh, Matthew, Levi, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. So Matthew wanted all his friends, all his neighbors to meet Jesus. But was that what he put on the Evites. Is he said, did, did, did he send out an invitation, you know, I'm going to have a come meet Jesus party at my house? I doubt it. Okay, Bible scholars figure the occasion for Matthew's party was probably his retirement. He was leaving the tax business. And so the Evite probably read something like this. You know, retirement party at my house, Saturday, 7 p.m., steaks on the grill, don't forget your swimsuit. 
Okay, and, and by the way, I hope to have an opportunity to tell you all what I got planned next in my life. It was, it was a retirement party. Now, I've been to some retirement parties, and they're pretty lighthearted events. And oftentimes, the host will stand up at the end of the evening, maybe on a chair, and say, hey, can I get, a, get your attention? Thank you for coming. You know, so honored that you were here tonight. And I just want to tell you what's next for me. Uh, you know, I hope to do some traveling. I hope to play a lot of golf. I plan to spend time with my grandkids. Uh, you know, I'm going to get involved at my church more than I have, serve in the community. And say, hey, have a good time. Don't eat before all, don't leave before all the food's gone and turn out the lights on your way out. Retirement, isn't, wouldn't a retirement party be a good idea for you as an excuse to invite people into your home, neighbors to your home? You say, well, I'm not going to get retired for some time. Okay, so what are some other occasions? What, what are some natural reasons you could use to have neighbors into your home? Wherever your home is, whatever your home is. Now, this is not going to be just a rhetorical question today. I'm going to make this an interactive experience. So here's what we're going to do across four campuses. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. Okay, I'm going to ask you to turn to someone uh, other than a family member, so you don't get to cheat and just talk to your spouse or your dad or what you, you got to talk to somebody you don't know, total stranger maybe, and say first thing you say is give your name, and then you're going to have two minutes to come up with as long a list as you can come up with about reasons to have neighbors into your house. Okay, things you could think of that would be an excuse to have neighbors over to your house. You, you're all following this? Okay, you ready to go? You get it? Oh, come on. You get it? Good. Stand up and talk to somebody. You got two minutes. Go for it.
Okay. Okay, go ahead and take your seats. Go ahead and take your seats. Whew. Good. All right. Wow. That was some good interaction. Now, uh, before we start talking about some of the occasions that you dreamed up to have neighbors over, I do want to say a, si a side note here, make a side note about the interactive experience you just participated in. Okay, uh, several weeks back, we did some focus groups, several focus groups at Christ Community Church. We just gathered together random groups of people who attend our church, and we said, we got two questions for you. Uh, number one, what do you like about our weekend services? And number two, if you could change anything about our weekend services, what would you change? So at least a couple of people said, you know when you make us stand up and talk to other people... <laughs> And I get so uncomfortable, you know, what we just made you do. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. One, one uh, young woman, woman in her 30s, she said, yeah, I get a little bit uncomfortable, but you know what's occurred to me? That how am I ever going to talk to the person next to me on the train or one of my neighbors if I can't even talk to the person next to me at church? So I say, keep doing it. And then all of the, get this, all of the middle school and high school students that were part of our focus groups, they all said, this is a great idea, keep doing it. So we're going to keep doing it, and I just want to say thank you if this stretches you and makes you a little bit uncomfortable. You know, church isn't just about being comfortable. It's about stretching you a little bit. So thank you for letting us stretch you. All right, now, what did we come up with? Reasons to have neighbors into our homes. I wish we could just call it out, but we couldn't do that and broadcast across four campuses. So let me give you some ideas that you might have come up with. Maybe you didn't come up. You probably came up with better ideas than these. But this is just to prime the pump, okay? How about watching a ball game together? Yeah, you've seen a neighbor who's always uh, sporting Cubs gear, Cubs cab, Cubs t-shirt, Cubs banner out front. Just say, you know, hey, I'm watching the Cubs game tonight. You want to come on over to my house and we can watch it together. Did you know the Cubs have scored over 31, not over, but 31 runs in the last two games? This has got nothing to do with the sermon, but I just, you know, I just, it's, it's a good reason to have somebody over, over to your house. Okay. Or how about this? How about a, a, a baby shower? Throw in a baby shower for someone in your neighborhood who's pregnant. Now make sure she's pregnant. Okay. But, but to say hey, we would love to have the neighbors celebrate your coming baby. I know you don't even know some of them. I don't know some of them. But if you don't mind, I'll host it at my home and we'll just throw open an, an invitation. How about a fire pit? Uh, Friday night, uh, 7 o'clock, Sue and I finished up with the dinner dishes and I said, I'm going to start a fire, call some neighbors. And within a few minutes, we had three neighbors around the fire pit. Now, it could be s'mores. We offered s'mores. You know, that could do it. But uh, how about a game night? And if you're into big crowds, you do like bunko with a ton of people. And if you're like into smaller groups of people, you do sequence or something like that. How about a book club? Okay, and if you do a book club, you know, you got to be careful that whatever you do, it, it, it doesn't make it sound like we're going to do this every week until Jesus comes. Okay, that's just going to scare people away. 
But, but what about saying, hey, I wanted to have a discussion about a book I just read. It's a really good book. Some of you might have read it. Or, you know, let's do this once a month for a couple months, see if it, you know, it takes, if people like it. How about after Halloween, which is just around the corner, you host a cookout after trick-or-treat. So after the kids get all j- jacked up on sugar, you know, you have them over to your house for dogs and beans and, and so on. Now, again, you probably came up with better ideas than the ones I just gave you. But I, I want to give you a, uh, tell you a heartwarming anecdote, something that happened to us just to motivate you in this regard. One of the methods that uh, Sue and I used just to get neighbors into our home several years ago is we had a Saturday Christmas cookie exchange the first Saturday of December. And we recognized the fact that this is a crazy busy time of the year. So it was deliberately really short. We, we gave it an hour and a half window. Uh, we sent out an invitation to our neighbors. We said, uh, this is going to be an hour, and it's open house. So if you want to, you can come show up for 10 minutes and then leave or stay the whole time if you want. It's, it's up to you. But we build it as a meet the neighbors you never get a chance to meet sort of thing. And you bring a plate of cookies, and we're careful to specify, if you're not a cook, just pick up something at the store. Bring some store-bought cookies is fine. So about 20 people showed up at our house. 20 neighbors. Now, here's the really uh, heartwarming part. Uh, At one point in that hour and a half, I'm sitting at my kitchen table, and there's an elderly neighbor on each side of me. So I turn to the guy on my right, and I say, so how long have you been living on Maple Lane? And he says, oh, about 35 years or so. I said, whoa. I turned to the older woman on my left. I said, how long have you been on Maple Lane? And she said, "Uh, 40 years. We were the first family on the block. And I said, well, that's incredible. And then I leaned back and I said, how long have you guys known each other? And they said, we just met today, right, right here. And I'm thinking, yes, at my kitchen table, that historic event took place. <laughs> you know, hospitality's occasion. Come up with some reasons to have neighbors into your house. Okay, here's a third aspect of hospitality. I'm going to call it hospitality's guest list. Okay, let's go back to the text again, pick it up in verse 29. Then Levi, aka Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. We continue on, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that's religious leaders who belong to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Several observations I want to make about these two verses. Okay, the first is that that verb complained, verse 30. The religious leaders complained about Matthew's guest list. The, The word complained here is a really, really grumpy word in the original language. In fact, it's the same word that appears in the Old Testament to describe the Israelites who were forced by God to wander in the desert for 40 years because they refused to trust God and they did nothing but complain, 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 complain. That's the verb that's being used here. The religious leaders were really grumpy about the fact that Matthew, you know, had the guest list that he had. The other thing I I, want to note is that they complained to whom? They complained to the disciples. Now, who were they really honked off with? Yeah, Jesus. Don't you love it when people are upset with you, but they complain about you to other people instead of to you? That's what's going on here. And here's another thing to note. 
The, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the, of the religious law, they weren't even at the party. <laughs> so what, what are they doing complaining about Matthew's business? I've got a theory. My theory is nobody ever invited them to a party, and so they were jealous. You know, nobody ever said to one of, you know, one of the Pharisees, come on over and watch a Cubs game with me. Never. Never. The, the, the last thing I want to note here is that the religious leaders looked at the crowd, and what did they see? They saw tax collectors and sinners. They saw undesirables. They saw people that you want to keep at arm's length. They saw annoying neighbors, if you would. What did Jesus see? You know, Jesus saw a guest list. And Jesus saw a guest list. Now, what do you see when you look at your neighbors? Do you see their annoying characteristics? I mean, like there's that neighbor who never fertilizes his lawn so the dandelions grow and the seed drifts over onto your finely manicured lawn. Is that what you see? You know, and then there's the neighbor whose teenage son is always driving too fast down the street. He's going to hit somebody someday. And then there's the neighbor whose dog barks at midnight. Or the one on the other side of the apartment wall who plays his music too loud. Or there's the one who leaves his trash cans at the end of the street for two days after garbage day. So they're rolling around in the street. Can't the guy pick up his trash cans? You see the neighbor who doesn't talk to you at the bus stop and you say, goodness, she's in my chemistry class. She pretends like she doesn't know me at the bus stop. You see people who look different from you. There's that Mexican, or is it Iranian? I'm not sure. I just don't understand their language. Is that what you see? Or do you see guest list prospects? Do you see somebody to invite over the next few weeks? You know, quick word to those of you who are middle school and high school students, okay? You guys can be a great help to your parents because oftentimes we adults, we don't know the other adults in the neighborhood. We don't. But you know their kids because you go to school with them, you play sports with them, you hang out with them. And, and so maybe you should try something like this with your mom and dad. Maybe you should say, hey, can I have a neighbor friend for dinner? And you have that friend once or twice. And then you say to your parents, hey, why don't you invite his parents to come with him next time I have him or her over? See, you guys are, young people are so good at this. Help us out. Stretch us. Give us a kick of the pants, if you would. And then here's something else to consider as you're putting together a, a list of potential guests. And by the way, I would encourage you to put together a list. So what neighbors are you going to start with? Okay, make a list. But, but as you're making the list, here, here's what I want to encourage you to do. And that is don't get stuck on people who are unresponsive. Because sometimes that, that's, that's what happens. We're determined to love our neighbors, and we start with, a, you know, the hardest nut to crack on the block. And some of you, over the last week and a half since we started this series, you have told me mean neighbor stories. You know, because you've asked me the question, like, do I really have to love this person? You know, let me tell you what this neighbor did to me. And, and so my short answer to that question is yes. 
<laughs> you gotta, you got to pray that God would somehow help you love that person. But no, you don't necessarily have to put them at the top of your guest list. Maybe you need to start with an easier mark, someone who would be more responsive to an offer of hospitality, an invitation to your house. So don't get wrapped around the axle of someone you're never going to succeed with and then you eventually give up. You know, start, start with someone who might be responsive as you make a guest list. Here's a fourth, fourth aspect of hospitality. Hospitality's goal. Take one last look at Luke 5. Uh, Bible scholars note that this story is similar to some of the other stories that you'll read about Jesus in the gospel accounts. And what these stories have in, co in common is conflict. In fact, scholars refer to them as conflict stories. And they say there are three parts to every conflict story that you, you find in the gospel. Part one, Jesus does something unconventional. He does something unsettling. In, the, in this case, uh, he hosts sinners and tax collectors. He eats and drinks with them. Uh, part two, the antagonists strenuously object. In this case, it's the religious leaders who come unglued and they're complaining, complaining, complaining about what Jesus is doing. Part three, Jesus uses this tense situation then as a teachable moment. He teaches an important life principle. So let's go back to Luke chapter five and conclude with verse 31 because this is the life lesson. Okay, th th this is what Jesus wants us to walk away with. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, Jesus says, The reason I'm doing this is because I've, I've come to call sinners to, to repentance. This is the goal of our hospitality. It's loving our neighbors, yes, in a broad general sense, but it's hoping, listen, it's hoping to open up a conversation with them that will give us an opportunity to point them to Dr. Jesus. Have you, have you ever noticed the word within the word hospitality? Okay, let's, see, let, let's put hospitality up here on the screen. What's the word within the word? Call it out. Hospital is a place for sick people. You know, the Bible tells us that we are all, every one of us, afflicted with a dread disease. It's a spiritual disease. It's a terminal disease. It's called sin. We have this bent of going our way instead of God's way, doing what we want to do instead of what God wants to do. God says, do this, and we don't do it. He says, don't do this, and that's exactly what we do. And in fact, though God spells it out in his word, we ignore his word. We don't really care what he says in this book. We're basically living our lives for ourselves. Now, the trouble with that trend in our lives is that as we go our way instead of God's way, we disconnect from the one who is the giver of life. God is the source of life. And when you pull apart from the one who is life, the consequence is death, which is why the scripture teaches the wages of sin is death. It begins on the inside. It begins as spiritual death, a broken relationship with God. Every one of us was there. That leads to physical death. If God is the sustainer of life and we go our way instead of his, we're all going to die at the end of this life and we're going to pass into eternity. And if the problem isn't remedied, we're going to endure eternal death, separation from God for all eternity. Now, the scripture teaches, while that's the bad news, the good news is God loves us so much 
In order to remedy our problem, he sent us his son. He sent us Dr. Jesus. So how does Dr. Jesus make us better? Well, he went to the cross. He died the death we're supposed to die. He took the hit. He paid the penalty for our sins. The penalty is death. He paid the penalty. And he rose from the dead and he now offers to everyone who will surrender to him. Jesus offers new life. Jesus offers spiritual healing. Jesus offers a vital relationship with God. The point of hospitality is to point people in that direction. To point people to Dr. Jesus. You know, Jesus practiced hospitality because he knew himself to be the doctor and he invited people to come to him. The reason we open our doors to our neighbors is in the hopes that somewhere along the line in conversation, we'll be able to tell them what Dr. Jesus has done for us. You know, I'm sure you're probably aware of this, but we live in a culture that's becoming increasingly anti-Christian right? Even hostile to those who are Christ followers. Some of our neighbors, they, you know, they don't want our Christian moral values. They don't want our gospel, our good news. They don't want to hear about our church. They don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want a personal relationship with God. What is going to change that? What's going to change their hearts? What's going to change their, their minds? The, the author of the book, The Simplest Way to Change the World, two authors, they offer an answer to that question. This is the book that we're promoting throughout this series. We'd love everybody to latch out to a copy of this book. Listen to what the authors say. For the people we have known who have very negative impressions of Christians, the only instances in which that has changed have always been through regular exposure to relationships with ordinary Christians who love Jesus and them. You hear what's being said there? If we ever hope to change the minds and hearts of, of people who are not interested in Jesus, it's going to take reaching out and loving them, showing them hospitality. Now that's going to take some effort on our, our part. You know, as we draw things to a conclusion today, let me, let me just make a, an observation, obvious observation. We are all tremendously busy people. And so, so what are we to do? Are we to add hospitality to the bazillion other things that are currently crowding our schedules? You know, the truth of the matter is, if we want to become hospitable people, something else in our lives is probably going to have to go. So if you, if you hope to put into practice what we're learning throughout this series, it's probably going to cost you something. Now, there's a second book that we're recommending throughout the series, and we also have it available at Resource if you want to do some extra reading. It's a book called The Art of Neighboring. And I want to close with a story uh, told by The Art of Neighboring about what it cost him and his wife to practice hospitality. Okay, this is what he says. He said, if you want to give your child the best chance at succeeding in any sport, you have to start him or her early. You need to get your kids into the best leagues, the ones that practice and play a lot, and you have to make sacrifices. Where, we're, where we live, there's a high-level baseball program that requires kids to practice three times a week and play 40-plus games a year. Yep, 40 games, even for nine-year-old children. And for better or worse, Ethan, this is the author's son, is extremely competitive. If given the option, he would surely choose to play as much as humanly possible. But Lauren and I knew that if we went that route, 
Our schedules would have to revolve around baseball for six months a year, leaving little time for much else, particularly for being present, listen, for being present in our neighborhood. The good news is that there's also a youth recreational league nearby. Anyone can sign up. In this league, they play only eight games per season. Well, as Lauren and I became convicted about being better neighbors, it was clear which league Ethan would join, even if it meant that it would impact his development as a baseball player. This decision was not easy, but it became clear that it was necessary if we were to take the great commandment, in other words, love your neighbor, if we were to take the great commandment literally. Sure, we wrestled with our decision. Placing our son in the eight-game-per-season baseball league may mean we're putting him on a track that will hinder him from becoming as good an athlete as he probably could have been had we pushed him harder. And sure, that wasn't an easy decision for two overly competitive sports-loving parents. Basically, the decision boiled down to the need for us to figure out what was more important and then actually to live by that decision. Figure out what's more important and then live by that decision. In this life, the author concludes, we can do only a few things really well. I think it's a good idea to make certain that one of those things is what Jesus says is most important. Love your neighbor. Now, I'm not dissing kids' sports, and you may be able to do kids' sports plus be a hospitable neighbor, or it may be something that has to be curtailed a bit if you're going to engage your neighbors, if you're going to open your home, if you're going to make room to have people over, or it may be something else. You know, just to be honest with you, I'll tell you what it is for me. You know, best night for us to have neighbors over from the standpoint of their schedule is a, is a Friday night. You know, it's the end of the week. People are done with work in most cases. But Friday also happens to be the one day a week that I have off. It's my only day off, and I'm an introvert who needs to withdraw a little bit into my shell and retool. And so what I have to sacrifice in having a you know, fire pit the other night for neighbors is I have to sacrifice you know, that desire to be left alone or to be left alone with my wife to enjoy the evening. I don't know what it's going to be for you, what it's going to cost you. You know, what you're going to have to pay to put some of those ideas in, into practice, but it will probably have to cost you something. But at the end of the day, we, we, we want to be not just hearers of God's word, but doers. And God says, love your neighbor. You've got to meet your neighbor to love your neighbor. And hopefully you'll use your home then for hospitality purposes to welcome your neighbor in. Let's pray. As we bow together in prayer, let me just say in a few moments, we'll collect our gifts, our offerings. And we'll sing a song, a song that's been written by our worship team, our Christ Community worship team. I think you'll enjoy. But uh, God, we just want to uh, pause in prayer and say, please bring this home, your message, bring it home to our hearts. Help us to take the steps we need to take. Again, this message, message is so simple that it's tempting to ignore it. Help us put it into practice in Jesus' name.